Let's pray together, church. Father, that is our prayer to God. Be the glory. May you receive all the glory, all the praise, all the honor this morning for whatever is done. Lord, we ask right now, please open our hearts. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you, to see truth, to rejoice in it, to love it. Oh, God, you're so good. Speak to us this morning through your spirit, by your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our lives are made up of a series of choices that we make. There are decisions that each of us have to make um, each and every day and each and every year. And some of those decisions are more difficult than others. I was a senior in high school. And our church had scheduled a senior ski trip. All the seniors were going skiing and it happened to fall during basketball season. Well, I also played basketball on the school team. Of course, you know, the school athletic teams were supposed to be your top priority. You missed other things. Where's Tristan? Yeah, sticks. You're supposed to miss everything else because this is your priority. Well, it was the same for me, and I had a decision to make. Was I going to go on the trip or stay? And I weighed my options, and there was this girl that I liked. She was going on the trip, so her name was Allison. I decided I was going to go on the trip. So I told my coach I was going on the trip. I wouldn't be there. He said, all right, there will be consequences. And I said, I understand. When I got back, I found out the consequences, and that was that I was to run 250 laps around the court. And in my heart, I'm thinking, well, that's not so bad. (laughs) Glad I made that decision. I love running. It's not always that easy, though, is it? Sometimes consequences are things that, that are much more difficult. And in our Sunday school class and later this morning, we'll talk about some even harder real life consequences for decisions that we make. But I knew good and well going into that, that I, there would be a consequence for the decision that I made, for the choice that I made. And, and you have faced this and you will face this. In the Bible this morning, in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, at the end of Daniel chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we will see that Daniel has, is going to face a decision and that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to face a decision that will have consequences. So as you turn your Bible there, uh, we're going to discuss that this morning. And, and there will be an ultimatum. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with that word, let me define that for you as we begin. But before we do that, let me read to you from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We're in our year to be together, together in 2022. Our passage of scripture that we've read each week this year has been, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light 
and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in what? The light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. An ultimatum. An ultimatum, what is that? I, I even asked my kids if they knew what it was. Several of them said, no, what's an ultimatum? I've never heard that word. An ultimatum is, uh, it is generally something like a threat attached to a set of demands. It's a threat attached to a set of demands. If you don't do this, or if you continue to do this, then this is going to happen to you. An ultimatum is oftentimes put in in a relationship. If you don't quit drinking, I'm leaving you. Oftentimes it's in war. If you cross this line, there will be military consequences. It's something that is if you choose, if you make your decision, if you go on this trip, there will be consequences. We face them in life. We face them in our family, in our household. Just recently, our children have been, um, and not uh, as a whole, have not been doing their piano lessons the way they should be. So, if you don't do your lessons as you're supposed to do them, what's going to happen is you're going to pay for those lessons out of your own pocket. Daniel chapter 2, beginning of verse 44. And in those days, the king, the kings, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. Just as a bit of review, if you remember, we've talked about Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel interpreted it. There would be a kingdom that would come greater than all of the other kingdoms. This statue we talked about with the golden head and the different materials. But there was one king, this rock that would come, that would crush all other kingdoms, and that would rule forever. And this was looking forward to Jesus coming and inaugurating the forever kingdom. The kingdom that Jesus came and said, the kingdom of heaven is now here. It is upon you as I'm casting out demons and exercising my authority Over all of the demonic powers, the spiritual powers of the age, the God of the age, I am executing authority regularly over them. This is why Jesus cast out demons. This is why Jesus brought healing. This is why Jesus did miracles to prove that his kingdom was an authority over all other authorities or powers. And Daniel says it's coming. So let me start again with verse 44. And in those days, in the days of those kings in the statue, the kingdoms, the God of heaven will set up another kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever, the forever kingdom. Just as you saw the stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, That it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, every other kingdom, every other authority. 
A great God has made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. We continue in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. You come, Daniel has figured out my dream. Remember, he didn't tell the dream. He said, you come with the dream and the interpretation. God gives Daniel the dream in the 11th hour, right before the deadline. Daniel comes, he brings that, and Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. Wouldn't you be? He is amazed at what Daniel has been able to provide. Daniel clearly gives credit to his God in heaven. No man can interpret dreams, but God can. And, and to pay homage to that, <coughs> to pay homage to that, he commands that offerings and incense be offered up to Daniel. Verse 47, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings. And a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Now, this is an interesting situation that I want us to think about a little bit. All right, you've got Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of Babylon, who is a, a military nation uh, conquering other nations and doing it in a very bloody and, and nasty way. He is the ruler, the leader. Nobody tells him what to do, and he's quite possibly one of the most powerful men in the world at the moment. And he says, okay, Daniel, you've done this miraculous thing. I'm giving you credit. I'm giving your God credit. And he, he does these things to give incense, and he says these words. So hear these words. Your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing the God of Daniel and notice that he says, your God is this great thing. He's he's the, the highest of things. So we should celebrate this, right? That the God of the universe, and, and I think Daniel probably did in the moment. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego probably did in the moment. But if you've ever read Daniel before, and I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler, when we get into the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar is doing very ungodly things. In fact, he's breathing murderous threats down the necks of those who are following the one true God. He's certainly not loving his neighbor as himself, and he's certainly not loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there's a... a, a, crisis here for Nebuchadnezzar. There's a a conflict that you've got somebody who recognizes God as the God of gods, the most high, but someone who also is going to try to kill people for honoring that God in just the next chapter. How can this be? How can this be? How can there be a reverence or a knowledge of God and yet be in, in the next chapter a, a become the, the arch enemy 
of God. Can it be that people recognize who God is, but not be followers of God? Is there a category for that? You know what I'm saying? People who say, you know, I believe there's a God, but I just don't want it. And I had somebody recently tell me, if there's a God in heaven, if, I don't like it. The problem, or what, what I think it makes the distinction between that category of people is, is one word, and we can talk about it a bit, but it is submission. Because we can believe or even know that there's a God, but not submit to Him. And the, the classic example for that is who? Who believes there's a God and even trembles and knows there's a God but does not submit to him it's Satan right the scripture James tells us about him the problem is there's a lack of submission and here's where this the idea of an ultimatum or a choice that you have to make they're given a choice you trust God and you submit to him Or you pay the consequences. And this is what we as Christians believe ultimately. Is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the King of Kings. He's Lord of Lords. Even like Nebuchadnezzar says. But merely believing that is is just not enough. That's not the kind of faith that is saving faith. There must be something more than acknowledging the truth. And say that again, there must be something more than just acknowledging the truth. There must be action upon that truth. And as Christians, each of us know that that comes from being born again. It comes from a, a transformation. As I read this morning from the book of Romans, it says you cannot submit to God if you are not, do not have the spirit of God. And I'll read that again in a moment. But this is how James says it. Are y'all with me? Are y'all following? Are y'all tracking with me this morning? It's not just affirming what's true. It's acting upon what is true. James says it like this. But God gives more grace. Chapter 4, verse 6. Therefore, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Oh, how many times I've quoted that verse and been so grateful. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, this is where James practically gets to. You believe there's a God? Good. Even the demons believe and tremble. But submit yourselves to God. Do more than just affirm the truth. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The the whole idea of this package deal is there is a submission to God. There is a drawing near to God. There is a desire to come to God and not to run from God. And this is when the new birth happens in us. When we do believe in God, 
We don't run from God and hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. We don't run and hide. We draw back to God and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for who I am. And you think about any healthy relationship that you have. Sometimes things happen. And you either begin to point fingers and say, Stephen, how could you do such a thing? Or you come and say, Stephen, I forgive you. That there's a drawing near or a drawing away. And Christian, we are called and commanded to draw near to God, to humble ourselves, to cleanse our hands. And and why does all this matter? I mean, let me finish reading this passage. It's so good. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Humble yourself. Draw near to God, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Beautiful passage. This is the crisis of salvation. The decision that... All men are called to do. Humble yourself before God. Believe in Jesus. Draw near to him. Repent of your sin and be saved. This is the step that Nebuchadnezzar missed. And we see it very clearly by his actions. He is not humbling himself before God. He may recognize who God is. But in the very next chapter, he exalts himself, builds a statue of himself and calls everyone to bow at his feet and say, I am awesome. And that is not what people of God do. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God and his authority and his goodness. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can not. Did you see that there? Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The godless cannot please God. They can recognize truths all day long. They can read the Bible. They can even preach and teach the Bible. You, however, are not in the flesh, Christian. Are you with me, Christian? Christian, are you with me? You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So back to our story. Verse 48. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. And made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all of the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar even does The things that you would expect someone who believes in God to do. So what does Daniel do? Daniel makes a request to the king. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the provinces or the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel receives all of this blessing and honor for what he's done. And he takes that that moment and he says, look, I'm going to do something wise. I'm going to take the other wise men that I know are wise men. I'm going to put them in leadership. Uh, We watched 
several veggie tales growing up. And I'll never forget Rack, Shack, and Benny. That was the nickname, Shad Rack, me Shack, and uh, Benny Go, Rack, Shack, and Benny. So here now you have leaders over the province of Babylon. And as Rack, Shack, and Benny are put in a position of leadership, they're going to be put in a place of decision. They're going to have to make a decision. And let's pick that up in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. So many of us don't think in cubits. We think in feet. Converts to probably about 90 feet or so. Um, And I thought of, okay, what's something we can compare that to? And I thought of the height of the church. Not a very good estimator. I couldn't find the height of the church and didn't want to estimate so much. But I did look up the height of something you probably all have seen. And it is the Bethany crosses in Baton Rouge. Y'all seen those? Okay. Uh, there, are two, there are two crosses. They're smaller and then one in the center. The one's on the side, 120 feet. Right? So pretty good chunk of that would be the height of this statue. If you've ever been to statues and stood at the bottom of them and looked up, it's pretty massive. 90 feet tall, golden image to the awesome one, Nebuchadnezzar. He sets it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of what? What province? Now, now who's in charge of Babylon? Rakshak and Bindi. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, which is a Babylonian leader, magician probably, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the what? Dedication of the king that the king had set up. Now, I remember when they dedicated this giant flagpole coming into Plaquemine. I was there. Invited to pray and be a part of that ceremony and was there. E.L., I think you were there. A couple of church members were there. It was a big deal. Let's make a dedication. They sang a song. This is the giant flagpole. We love our country. Big dedication. Good thing. Well, here we love our ruler, Nebuchadnezzar. So everybody gathers in all the leaders. It is a black tie affair. It's, it's all the important people. Verse 3, then the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the king, of the image of King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image Nebuchadnezzar set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, And every kind of music, all of the peoples, nations, and languages 
fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So now you've got the backdrop. This is the ultimatum. And help me out. What is it? When the bagpipe plays, we didn't know we were in Scotland, but when the bagpipe plays, what do you have to do? Bow down, worship the image. Not a problem, right? But wait. For Jewish exiles, remember the context of all this, again, Jewish exiles, they're supposed to be following the God of the Bible. They've been brought out of their land of Israel, brought into a foreign land, been indoctrinated with foreign teaching. They're not supposed to have any idols before God. And it is in the Ten Commandments, which is their document. It's their plans and policies, if you will. It's their governing document. So they know there's a conflict at this point. There is a crisis. What are you going to do? And the people of Israel, and specifically, Rack, Shack, and Benny, they've got a decision to make right there in their own backyard. It's going to happen. Now, we in the 21st century, we look back and go, well, I know what I would do. It's a tough situation. The governing bodies are telling you to do something that you think is wrong. Can that happen in our day? Can the governing bodies mandate that you do something that is wrong? Well... You just think about some of the things that we saw in the last couple of years. The state of California, the government mandated that going to church was against the law. It's against the mandate, I should say. Many Christians had to make a decision. What are you going to do? Are you going to go worship or not? This is something that, that can happen in our day and age. You know, there are a lot of complexities to these things. But it's not outside of the realm for us as Christians to think, well, what are we going to do? You can turn around the globe. I talked with a, a pastor friend this week, last week, who went to China every year. Ministered to pastors and uh, encouraged pastors and was a part of the church in China. He said they shut it down. Government said you cannot go anymore. He went for 12 years straight, and now he's no longer able to go because the government's on them now. The Chinese church is growing at a rapid rate, but it is against the law to be a Christian in China. You cannot be one. They will find you. They will punish you. So this is not nothing that couldn't happen to us. It's nothing that couldn't be a part of our day and age. So we have to look and say, all right, well, where are we then? And what do we do in these types of situations? And I'm going to give you two things, two thoughts, two, two schools of thought as you think through 
How do you handle situations when you are called to make a decision that you believe may not be right in the eyes of God or there will be consequences? It may not be the government. It may be your company that you work for. It may be your local government. It may be even in your family. If you live in a family that is not governed uh, under Christian parents. There are instances in which you are called to compromise something. So let me give you two schools of thought. And really, we see this happening a lot in our culture and and where we live and what we do. And these are two things that every Christian needs to think through. And it's two words that begin with P. The first one is pragmatism. The second school of thought is principle. So pragmatism and principle. And these are two... Uh, Schools of thought or choices that can be oftentimes made that people think through when you have to make a decision one way or another. So let me give these to you quickly and then we'll finish up. What is pragmatism? You may have heard the word. It's not pragmatic. What does pragmatism mean? Well, it is a school of philosophy at its core. Uh, And I'll read to you uh, so that I don't get it messed up. But this is. The definition that I found dominant in the United States um, and began uh, to take hold often in the 20th century based on principles of usefulness, workability and practicality in ideas of policies, politics, proposals uh, based on the merit of action. And if you look at the root word for Uh, pragmatic, it it comes from the root word of action. It means you can get something done. And oftentimes uh, when we're faced with decisions, we will say, well, what is the outcome of the decision I'll make? And I'll make my decision based on what the outcome is. So for instance, in this case of the, the idol being brought up, If I don't bow down to the idol, I will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And I don't want to be thrown in a furnace. So therefore, I'm going to bow down to the idol, the statue. And for many people there, it didn't mean much. Okay, I'll worship your statue, and then I'm going to go along my daily life. But for some, it was a compromise of beliefs. And they, and they would have to say, all right, well, what do I do? What's the best decision? What's the best course of action? And I believe for some of the Jews in that situation, they thought something like this. Well, I can't do much good if I'm ashes. So I'm just going to go along with it, bow down, worship the statue, but I don't really mean it. But I'll still live another day and I'll be able to speak truth and honor God, but I'm going to just go with it, go along with it and let it happen. And then there were those who thought, okay, great statue, I'll worship it. I think there were a lot of different groups of people here, but pragmatism would say, I'll find out a way for it to work. And then there, and let me give you another biblical example of that. All right. Acts chapter eight. This is What's the end outcome? And I'll make my decision based on whatever the end outcome that I want. Pragmatism. The action that I want to happen is how I'll make my decision. Acts chapter 8, 
verse 18 through 22. This is Simon the sorcerer. Very pragmatic guy. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. This is a great power. I'll pay you for it. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this manner. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray that the Lord, if possible, that the intent of your heart may be forgiven to you. So Simon thought, you know, this would be great if I had this. I'll pay my money. I'll do whatever it takes to get this power. The end result is I want this power and I'll do whatever it takes. Hey, can I buy you? The principle, you got pragmatic and you got the principle, is Peter here who turns to him and says, this is not about end result. This is about the principle of God. And so that leads us kind of to the other idea, and that is making your decisions based on principle. So at our young adult study last night, Stephen brought up that that idea of are we compromising principles by certain decisions we make as a church and one of the examples he brought up specifically was well we have a super bowl party are we canceling worship service to watch a football game is that a compromise of our principles so we kind of discussed that last night folks who were there and talked through some things is is that a compromise of principle Is it just being pragmatic or is it upholding the principles that we need to uphold as a church? So here you get, how do you make these decisions? An example biblically of making a principled decision. There are many, but I'm going to give you one in 1 Samuel 26, verse 7 through 11. Here's someone making decision on principle. It's David. So David and Abashai, one of his Mighty men went to the army at night where Saul lay sleeping within the encampment and with his spear stuck in the ground near his head or at his head. And Abner, the the commander of the army, laying around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given the enemy, your enemy, into your hand. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. We can end this. Remember, David is running for his life. From Saul, who's trying to kill him. I will not even have to strike him twice. I got this, David. God has provided us this moment. God did it. What does David say? Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die or he will go down to battle and perish, which is exactly what happened to Saul. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now take the spear that is hand and the jug of water and let's go. David operated on principle that it was not his job to kill Saul, the king of God's people. Principle. It would have been quite pragmatic for David to do so, but he chose not to. Next week, we'll look at the decision that Rakshak and Benny make. This morning, I'd like to, to challenge each of us 
to work through some of the decisions and choices we have to make and why we make them. What are the decisions that we were making and do they compromise principles of Christian character, Christian value? When we when we encourage our children to participate in certain things, maybe they're sporting events where you have to miss church regularly. Is that a compromise of what we're teaching as Christian? When we watch certain things on TV that have godless sayings and godless content. Men, are you compromising that and telling your wife, well, it doesn't matter what they say. Are those compromises? Is it pragmatic? Is it a compromise? There are decisions we face every single day. I'm asking you as a church, think through these things. Are you being overly pragmatic and under principled in the decisions that you make? And and we'll find out next week what Rackshack and Benny do. Finally, let me close with this. The greatest decision that you can make is one undergirded in principle. And that is, do you come to know and love Jesus Christ the Lord? As I shared with you earlier, just knowing the truth or confessing the truth is not what saves your soul. It is a surrender and a submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I invite you this morning, if you've never done that, you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. You must make a choice. You will bow down before the altar of this world, the statue of whatever it may be. But Nebuchadnezzar has set up statues all over this world. And what we've seen is the kingdom of God will crush them all one day. And for those who are not a part of the kingdom of God, there is, there is punishment. And it's not 250 laps around the gym. It is eternal punishment called hell. And Jesus spoke of it very clearly. Will you choose to seek God, to love God, to follow his son Jesus Christ? Or will you seek to bow down at the altars that this world places up for you to serve? That is a question we have that everyone must come to make a decision. Let me pray for us today. Father, we thank you for the message of Daniel, that there is a kingdom, that Jesus rules that kingdom, that you've invited us into the kingdom, that you have loved the world, that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, we ask that you convert souls, that you save souls this morning. And finally, Lord, we ask that you give us a heart to make decisions that are principled in our Christian faith. They're not merely pragmatic, looking for outcomes. But based on who we are now in Christ, we make decisions that are God-honoring and that we can sing with Miss Belinda. To God be the glory for the things you have done. We have made our decisions based on who you are, O oh God. Lord, we ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.